friends, and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Dr. Juliet White-Smith, who is the professor of viola and chamber music at Ohio State University, and during the summer, on faculty at the Brevard Music Festival. She was also the former president of the American Viola Society, is currently on the board of Rachel Barton Pine's Music by Black Composers Project, and was recently asked to present for ASTA, American String Teachers Association, for teaching musical diversity. On her debut album, Fashionably Late, she is the first person to record Pulitzer Prize winner George Walker's Viola Sonata and will be talking about her love for reading. Welcome, Juliet. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Patty. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So your episode is going to air in Black History Month. And I asked my good friend, Mary Ferrillo and Francesca McNeely, who have both been previous guests on the podcast. And Mary said, well, you know, I just was talking to Juliet and she is such a wonderful person. I think she would be great. And I said, okay. So I just reached out and contacted you and you're so warm and welcoming. So I'm so grateful that you were willing to share some time with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And she said that you were very helpful finding a piece of music for her something along those lines? Yes. In around, I don't know, 1989, 90, when I was at the Eastman School of Music, a couple of years prior, during my first college teaching job at Western Michigan University, I had been asked to do a presentation on classical music by Black composers for a course in the Black American Studies, I believe it was called, department at that university. At the time, I was unable to get my hands on any music for viola to be able to share with that class. And the class was in another department outside of music. But, you know, I was asked to perform something. And it wasn't until I got to Eastman where I was doing my doctorate that I actually was able to put my hands on some published facsimiles of some works, some very contemporary works, obviously, for viola by Black composers. So I was just thrilled. And I started photocopying and two of the pieces that I came across were by the composer Ulysses K. And fast forward to the present, I've been performing one of those pieces for quite some time. One of them, he had actually retracted. And even though I had gotten a hold of the music, there were missing measures in the facsimile from what I made copies of. And I didn't know how to follow up and find that information. But when I was president of the American Viola Society, one of my colleagues on the board, who at the time I think was the editor of our journal, he had started a project called the American Viola Project. He's a librarian at Rice University and a violist. And he has a strong interest in finding music, you know, sort of hidden gems, things that are out of publication. In any event, I reached out to him because I knew that I had been instrumental in helping getting some things up on our website available for our membership. And so I reached out to him about the possibility of taking this manuscript and putting it into a more readable format and getting permission to be able to provide it to our membership. Well, lo and behold, when I reached out to him, it turned out he had the contact information for Virginia Kay, who's one of Ulysses Kay's daughters. Got it. Long story short, she ended up having a relationship with the American Composers Alliance and had them reissue the music about a year ago, almost now. And so that was exciting to get that back in the public eye. Yeah. Um, really in the public eye for the first time. Violas knew that it existed, but there was no way to get a hold of it. And sure. so Mary had reached out to ACA to try to get performance rights and found out that this was going to be a premiere. And this happened to be the piece that I didn't have the complete music to. Sure. It's Sonatina for viola and piano. It's a lovely one movement piece, about four minutes long. And she ended up premiering it this summer at Tanglewood in their virtual format. So she reached out to me. We had a wonderful conversation about it. In the meantime, both of us were interviewed by WBUR in Boston. Mm -hmm. 
and also the Boston Globe as part of publicizing and making the public aware of this wonderful piece and this upcoming premiere. And it was really a wonderful opportunity for me to also just meet a new violist. She since came virtually to my studio class and we played the performance from the Tanglewood performance this summer in July for my studio class this fall. And then we got to have a wonderful Q&A with her. Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah. How full circle. Yeah. I think that that's an incredible story of what we're trying to do in classical music is unearth all these pieces that we just haven't found a way to do so yet. Or I think now maybe the catalyst has arrived for it to happen. Absolutely. You know, the music's been there. Some of the music has been hard to get a hold of, you know, because not all of it, especially from earlier in the 20th century, it hasn't been available in the normal published format. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's been a lot of research done on it. There are catalogs that include lists of these composers and their music. And there have been pockets of interest and advocates for the music, but it hasn't been part of the normal classical canon, a lot of this music. Some of it, but not as much as could be, in many cases, should be. Deservedly, maybe. Yeah. Can we do the Spitfire questions? Are you ready for those? Okay, I think so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Mozart or Beethoven? Depends on the day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) And my mood. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So every other day is, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Oh, wow. You're giving me some really hard ones. Um, (laughs) You know, Shostakovich, obviously, you know, wonderful chamber music, the viola sonata, but there are some, you know, great chamber music, you know, of Prokofiev and transcriptions of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a little hard to, again, you're giving me, I'm not good at making decisions. So, okay. Uh oh. So this, <laughs> this might get worse. I don't know. It might. <laughs> Maybe this one might be easier. Netflix or video games? Netflix. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> yeah. Easier. <laughs> Basil or cilantro? I probably use Basil more, but I love them both. Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. I am on my third or fourth time through the books, and I'm trying to read book one in French right now. Wow. Have you (laughs) noticed any differences? Yeah, just even like titles of books are different and chapters, and I'm working on my French. It's something I've studied since high school and hoping to one day travel more. I've had a couple of excursions to France over the years and would love to spend more time there. I see. Okay, this might be a hard one again. Symphony or chamber music? Chamber music. Okay, maybe not so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee or tea? Tea. I probably drink more tea, but I love coffee. Again. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Favorite practice room? Probably the practice rooms at LSU, Louisiana State University, because I spent time there from my teenage years on. And the ones in the old building, which is now not the music building, had these great big windows. Okay. Favorite professor shout out, or maybe you should say mentor shout out? Probably the person who had the biggest impact on me, the reason I am a musician, Sally O'Reilly. Oh, sure. Um, She was my violin professor in undergrad. And she's also the first person who at least put the thought in my mind to try viola, even though I didn't try it while I was studying with her. Huh. I actually didn't realize that you studied with her. Yeah. I was one of her first students at LSU. She came there my sophomore year in the early 80s and fall of 81. I just know her in Minnesota. I just know her down the corner here, you know? So that's where I was like, oh, she was in LSU. Okay. No, she, if it weren't for her, I would be an engineer of some sort. Oh, wow. Most likely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank goodness. No, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Oh, wow. 
Sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That, yeah. I haven't thought of anything like that in a long time. I know I'm going to make a mistake by choosing anyone. Oh, no. Um, this just could be a, how you feel today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how I feel today. The first name that comes to my mind is Aretha Franklin. Oh, how could that be a wrong answer? <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. Just a powerhouse and such an influence on music in general and just nonstop. I mean, to the end, you know, yeah. she could rock a house. <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. She is, <laughs> I love her to death. And yeah. yeah, most transformative performance experience. I have one as a violinist and one as a violist. Okay. So my senior year of college as a violinist, it was Mozart G minor string quintet. Oh. I was first violinist. And I was in the zone. It was one of those times where I was playing with some grad students as well as I think a fellow undergrad. And it was just one of those confidence building experiences for me. Just knowing that, yes, I can do this. I know that I had worked hard, but I didn't let my own mind get in the way. And it was very transformative. And the other one was chamber music. It was chamber music that brought me to the viola. I was 23. It was my second year of my master's degree. And I had decided that I would take a viola home over the summer and give it a try. A friend a pianist who I actually work with now. He lives in Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And we started playing together the last four years. He was assigned to be my collaborative pianist and played my juries my first year as a violinist. And he was interested in playing the Brahms piano quintet. And he said, why don't you program that for your master's recital? And I was like, oh, that means I have to play first violin. <laughs> <laughs> and I just loved playing second violin. I loved being on the inside of the action, you know? And I said, you know, maybe this is the time for me to try the viola. Oh, and and I took the viola home, didn't really practice it. I was having fun playing violin, but, you know, learned a little bit, came back in the fall, got this wonderful group together. And a month into the semester, I think we were playing in a master class for the Tokyo String Quartet, the first movement. And again, it was one of those kind of in the zone moments. I also was recovering from food poisoning. Oh, dear. And so I think it was another one of those things that just kind of, I couldn't care, you know, about anything about the audience, about am I going to do a great job or not? It was just like, I was playing the music. I was loving the music. And it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful performance. The quartet actually initially said, wow, you guys are doing great. You know, we're not quite sure, you know, really what to tell you, which was really, you know. I mean, high praise. Yeah. And of course, Peter Ungen, he said, well, I think I can think of some things. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, it was kind of great. But it was just, it was a wonderful group of musicians that I was working with. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I went to the registrar, I dropped my violin lessons and the rest is history. <laughs> What a story. I mean, both times though, you're saying it, it's a pivotal moment in that way of just how you zoned out everything else. Yeah. And yeah. it was just about you and the music in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And just in the collaboration, that's what it is. You know, when you ask me symphony or, you know, orchestra or chamber music, it's an easy one for me. And a lot of violists, I think, tend to feel that way. And when I am playing orchestra, when I'm having the most fun in orchestra is when I'm feeling like it's chamber music. It's big chamber music. Right. And this is the final question. Next piece you'd like to learn? Ooh. Well, I'm working on a lot of things right now because I've got some projects going but that I'd like to learn. Let's put it this way. I was needing to rejuve a little bit. And so I've started looking at the Bach violin solo pieces. Okay. You know, having played a couple of them 
poorly in high school, one in college, and then I think I revisited in grad school. And just anything Bach, just go, going back, and especially I needed a little diversion from the cello suites. So I've been kind of playing around with the G minor, which of course is in C minor for viola, and I'm trying to think the other one. I think it's the A minor, which was in D for us, I guess then. Yeah. The only other thing I could think of is at one point I was toying with the idea of trying to transcribe, but only with a few octaves, the third Brahms violin sonata. Oh, well, yeah. And doing that on viola. I might be a traitor to my musical race here by saying this, that I want to play some violin music. But I don't know. It's, I think I've earned it, you know? All yeah, these- well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear what it would sound like on a viola. I mean, yeah. has anyone done it yet? I know that there are a couple of different versions of the first sonata. And the second sonata, I have a wonderful recording of Roger Chase playing it on viola. And I think in a major, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. but not I don't think the third so well let us know when you do when you do it sure. I would love sure. to hear that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well congratulations you made it through I hope it wasn't too hard <laughs> But in any case, could you tell us how you got into music? What inspired you in the craft? And then you did speak a little bit of how you transitioned from violin to viola, but just take us on your journey of how you got to where you are today. Well, my dad was an amateur musician who loved playing music. He was an architect and a professor of architecture, actually, and a practicing architect. But he studied music in high school. He studied in college at the University of Illinois, mostly as a singer in high school, I think, in bands. But when I was little, his mother played piano and organ. Mm -hmm. And we all had to, at least all the grandchildren had to take a little bit of piano. And I grew up in the Baptist church. His father was a Baptist minister and his grandfather as well, my great grandfather. And music was a really important part of our experience, you know, church music and playing in church and all that sort of stuff. I started piano when I was in kindergarten at the age of five. We lived in Tuskegee, Alabama, actually. My dad was teaching at the university there, Tuskegee, what was Institute then and now university. And that's when I got started. We moved to Houston the next year and they found me a piano teacher and I continued for a little while, but I was getting kind of bored. The teacher was a little frustrated with me because I wasn't practicing. (laughs) Later on, I kind of found out he was maybe a TA and not really used to teaching young people. And, but I kept it up on my own. According to my parents though, when I was three, I said I wanted to play the violin. And they didn't realize that I actually knew what it was. I mean, they probably had taken me to, you know, like an outdoor concert or something like that. But I guess they didn't know I paid quite that much attention or something. So I heard this story growing up and just never got the opportunity until we moved back to Baton Rouge, where I was born in fourth grade. The middle of that year, I think January of that year, I started playing. I fractured my arm in the fall. I started playing in school, in public schools. My orchestra director was a cellist, actually, and she saw that I had some gifts and she told my folks at the end of the spring semester, you know, I'd just been playing four months or something. She said, Juliet really needs private lessons. And she lived close by. She said, I can teach her this summer. And I guess I accelerated enough to the point she said, well, I think she's ready for a real violinist. So she sent me to a violist. a performing violist, but someone who is also, you know, violin. It's interesting that I was studying violin with someone who's primarily violist at that point. And so I kept the violin going in high school from seventh grade, actually on, I ended up at a private school. It was very small, 62 people in my graduating class. They only had choir and band. And so from ninth grade on, I started playing in band. I played bass clarinet bassoon and I was quite spread thin. I was just doing, I was doing everything. I was on yearbook staff. I was the editor my senior year, you know, just, it was too much. I was drum major of the band, you know, (laughs) 
everything. I almost didn't. <laughs> my, my violin teacher, my last two years of high school, was actually the professor at LSU. And he told me a couple of weeks before my audition, he said, I don't know if you're going to make it. You need to buckle down and get your act together. I got really scared, kept practicing. I was at the lab school at LSU and it was only about two blocks away from the music building. So I told my mom, pick me up at six o'clock from the music building instead of after school when she got my siblings. I'm just going to go straight there with my violin and practice which I did for two weeks. And then I did a great job and got in and got into the Baton Rouge Symphony and, and realized, oh, this is what it's going to take. And so that first year I was practicing more. I was making some improvement. And then my second year was when Sally O'Reilly came to LSU and she kind of just put everything in context for me. Like, you know, Juliet, you're talented, but you've missed, you know, you've got some catch up to do. And you've, as far as your practice time and we need to catch you up and you should be practicing this much every day and da, 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 da. you know, Meanwhile, I had graduated at the top of my high school class. My math teacher, I loved math, my favorite subject. And uh, my math and science teachers and my dad were pushing me into engineering. And, you know, I was taking calculus for my electives for fun. You know, nobody does that, right? <laughs> um, and a mechanical drawing class, all this stuff. And, you know, doing really well at it, but still realizing couldn't please my dad and do what I wanted to do. And I, and I ended up definitely just going the whole violin route. And it's just been a passion, you know, ever since. And, you know, eventually, as I said, you know, kind of the story of the viola switching in grad school and then was fortunate enough to apply for a college teaching job, which was just a one year sabbatical replacement that the age of 25, two years after becoming a violist, I had this college job for a year. And, and this was before getting a DMA, is this correct? Yeah. And that turned into two years at Western Michigan. And then I went to Eastman, put in two years in my residence and then got my job in Colorado where I was for the bulk, you know, 21 years of my teaching career. And so, yeah, so I guess that's kind of the story of how it all evolved. Sure. I mean, I had a couple of questions along the way, one of which is when you're talking about how you were excelling in math, but yet you were drawn towards music. What was the thing that kind of clicked into place that, no, it was music after all? Yeah, I couldn't perceive, no one really explained to me or gave me examples of what I would really do as an engineer. Oh, and, I, okay. and so for that reason, I couldn't decide which branch of engineering I would go into. I, I mean, see. That was one part of it. I love doing math. And, you know, and I'm the kind of person who, when you're problem solving, you know, you're on your own and you're figuring it out and you're going at it from all these different angles. And, you know, it becomes kind of this holistic kind of experience in a way, but I couldn't see myself making a living doing math problems. (laughs) I couldn't get myself beyond like what that would mean for a career. I get that. Yeah. I just had this idea that as a musician, you can see the instant gratification that you are giving to the audience. It's totally a whole reward system that you could see and visualize yourself in. With math, it's sort of behind scenes sometimes or seemingly. Yeah. And as much of an introvert as I am, I'm an extroverted introvert. So I really need to connect with people. And there was something about music. There were times where I thought, man, I wish I were a singer because I feel like I need to get what I want to say in words. But there's also something incredible and wonderful about instrumental music is that you can express emotion without words. You know, it expressed so much to me. I loved listening.
listening to music. My idols were Perlman and Zuckerman and Chung and all of these incredible musicians who, that's what I wanted to sound like. I was competing with the best version of myself, I guess, Mm -hmm. to get better, you know? And these were the sound ideals that I had, you know, and again, that and making music with other people and expressing myself, you know, through my art, that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't see how that would work. I saw that path as a musician. I didn't see that path playing itself out the math or engineering route. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Not to say that it wouldn't, but I didn't see it. I get, yeah. My other question is about your teaching philosophy. So I found a little interview for the Ohio State University on YouTube. Can you speak a little bit about how teaching is just as much of an art form as musicianship? You mentioned this idea of how you're not just teaching viola, but you're mentoring students. And I feel the same way with my own students that I feel like I'm not just treating them as technicians of the instrument, but I'm also, you know, enhancing them as people. But I guess I was curious about what it is in that process for you that is connecting between technically becoming proficient in your instrument to manifesting a unique individual through that process. For me, someone mentioned to me that I have an engineer's mind. Well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there's something about being able to pull back, zoom out basically, you know, instead of, you know, just fixing a problem in and of itself, zooming out and looking at it as a part of a whole. And I feel like doing that is not unlike living life or maturing as an individual. You know, when we're younger, we have our own unique perspective and it's limited because we have a limited amount of experience. We have a limited amount of knowledge. And, you know, some of that is information and experiences that have been chosen for us. And as we mature and grow older and get more experiences, then we have the capacity to then look at some of the same situations or problems from a different vantage point. We just have a lot more information. And my feeling is that we, we continue to do that throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like at the point at which we stop doing that, then it's over, sure. you know? So for something like, let's say a Brahms Sonata, I played my first viola Brahms, you know, at the age of 23 or four, actually, the F minor Brahms Sonata. And the way I played it then is nothing like I play it now or any of the times in between. But I had to be able to develop the confidence in myself and this body of knowledge and experience to be able to, you know, then be confident with making choices, interpretive choices, Mm -hmm. or play a convincing interpretation of something. And so for me with my students, I guess the way that translates is that I don't want to just spoon feed them information. I want to help them solve the problem. I didn't grow up with a specific method. I wasn't a Suzuki trained kid. I sometimes refer to myself as kind of a mutt. And also having gone from violin to viola, you know, in my twenties, I also didn't do any kind of sort of standard trajectory of viola repertoire. I was teaching it as I was learning it. So I guess out of necessity, I've been on this exploration for my whole teaching career. And my students are kind of a part of that exploration. And I include them in that process. I also believe very much, you know, just getting back to the video that you brought up, which I was, was really a wonderful opportunity, was this idea that I was raising humans. I, and my job as a professor, yes, I've been hired to teach the viola and to teach chamber music and pedagogy and, you know, whatever comes my way, right? Mm-hmm. But that's just the vehicle. The viola is just the vehicle through which I'm really, you know, it's like raising kids. I'm raising humans, you know, and kind of growing them 
maturing them and giving them bigger, broader tools that they can take in their lives, not just whether they do viola beyond college or not, that they have these tools for how they approach their work and their lives. And that is kind of how the lesson progresses. Sure. I feel like in my own experiences teaching and also my own experiences being a student is that you create a connection of empathy between one another and that you can recognize universal struggles between one another. And maybe someone has had the experience to say, oh, it looks like this tool might fit this problem, you know, and then you craft it individually for themselves to make it work for themselves. But it's kind of the blueprint tool that you might have. And, And that's at least that's where I was relating with you and your explanation of your teaching method and philosophy. Yes, absolutely. Can I also now ask you a little bit about what is our purpose now as classical musicians? You know, of course, now that with George Floyd passing away, just only a few miles away from me, you know, that sort of thing, and how it has sparked such a revolution in all of classical music, just so abruptly where it was, where people like Ashley Gordon and Castle Verskins have been working so hard to fight for Black voices. And it seems like now now it's suddenly everyone's on board and it's a bit abrupt, but yet, I mean, necessary needed. And 2020 has been such a reflective time and year to sit back and reevaluate what we're doing. So I guess I'm curious to get your insights on that. You know, as you've grown up through the career and profession, where do you see the future of classical music or the role of classical musicians continuing in time? It's been interesting to experience all of this, you know, this past summer and this explosion of interest, especially as someone who, you know, since the late 80s was exploring this, trying to get involved in this in some way or another. And I've had a lot of mixed feelings about it as a result. One of the things about being a violist, we're not usually the instrument of choice when a composer is writing music. Whereas the violin music by Black composers goes back centuries. For violists, it's just mid 20th century and beyond. So it's a much, much shorter time period. That coupled with, as I was saying earlier, these pieces were written for specific performers, for specific occasions, and existed until literally a year ago with the K pieces. And much more recently, really, July, were difficult to get a hold of. And then were not in a format that was as readable. Uh, You know, there were facsimiles of the original manuscript, some of them easier to read than others. So there wasn't the opportunity for this music to be played. So having done a lot of work, you know, on this earlier, kind of trying to gather this music, pull some things together. At one point, you know, when I made that first CD, I was considering actually making a CD that was all Black composers. I didn't have enough music at that time. And it was all somewhat avant-garde. And I didn't feel like I had a balance of the repertoire. I also, as I was floating these ideas around to colleagues, I was getting some of my insecurities about doing this were reflected back to me about, well, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself and, you know, sort of things like that. So I went through a time period where it didn't feel like it was the welcome environment. And for it to suddenly be what it is now is jarring in a way, you know, and I'm glad that people are seeing the value of this music. And I think it's 
important that we also understand that, you know, like you mentioned, Ashley Gordon, and even with myself and Rachel Barton Pine, there are people who've been doing this for a long time. And we're just the recent ones, you know, Black music, classical music organizations were started much earlier in the 20th century. And then you get into the, I think maybe 50s or 60s when the journals started, the Black Perspective in Music and then Black Music Research Journal. And you have Eileen Southern and her, you know, monumental book, Music of Black Americans, countless others, Samuel Floyd and his posthumous book, The Transformation of Black Music, I believe it is, co-written with Melanie Zek. And the Center for Black Music Research at Columbia College in Chicago and just all these archives. And it's been going on for so long. I don't want those stories to be forgotten. I don't want that work, that legacy to be forgotten. This didn't just start with people who, and with white people who got interested in this, this summer, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm grateful that white people are on board with this, but there's a longer timeline of this activity than most people are aware of. And I'm not saying that white people weren't involved with this before now. There have been many premiering works as well by this group of composers, but it's been challenging for me, you know, emotionally, I Thing. This isn't a fashion statement, in other words, yeah. right? To, to make it, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I hope that anyone who's listening does do the deep dive into preserving this music because that's, I guess, maybe that's my view of it is preserving stories and right. preserving history and through music and music being part of the culture of generations of peoples, you know? And so right. it is our responsibility to be reflective of all diversity and all cultures. Right. And that it's not just because it's topical now. It it needs to continue for the future. And we have some wonderful living composers of color, Black and otherwise. And I think they're getting wonderful attention and opportunities now. And that's great. And all of our living composers need that, right? Mm -hmm. And I hope also that our historical composers of color are also honored and regarded because I think about someone like Ulysses K, who, you know, his music was performed, you know, by the New York Philharmonic you know, major orchestras, Chicago, I think Philadelphia along. He met Shostakovich. I think their music was being performed side by side on a concert, but they got these like one-time opportunities mm-hmm. or maybe a handful of opportunities. And then the music kind of went under the rug, so to right. speak. But it's just as compelling and of quality. That's the other thing. Like you said, the phrase, you know, fashion statement. We don't want any of this to be a fashion statement. We want it to have legs, you know, and become a part of our musical tapestry and, you know, not ornamental for the time. Did you happen to read Alex Ross's article in The New Yorker this summer? Here we are. I don't remember. Black scholars confront white supremacy in classical music. And although the title is quite, uh, (laughs) the subtitle is the field must acknowledge a history of systemic racism while also giving new weight to black composers, musicians, and listeners. Most of his article is actually speaking about how people like William Grant Still and Florence Price felt like they must compose in this specific format in order to be taken seriously by these organizations, the orchestras, and to be programmed and to be taken seriously by the community versus other composers who might wanted to do something a little bit outside the box more. And I guess after 
after reading that article, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective. One could even say, let's, you know, George Walker might be an example similar that he's from the vein of Barber and has that traditional training. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Right. I did not see that article. Actually, I will read it though. But there were at the time, two different kind of schools of thought as far as Black composers. The earliest composers, you know, Dvorak, when he was in the States, developed, you know, a relationship with Harry T. Burley. And Dvorak, I think, wrote, you know, compelling American composers to embrace American music. But the general population of white composers were trying to emulate and always had and wanted to continue trying to emulate this Western European ideal. Mm -hmm. But some of those earlier Black American composers, like William Grant Still, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, were writing classical music that included incorporated Black folk element. There was more of like a neoclassicism, neo-romanticism in their styles. This is like William Dawson and his Negro Folk Symphony and others. Like I said, I think Margaret Bonds. But then the next generation, yeah. what were Ulysses K., George Walker, mm -hmm. T.J. Anderson, and others, they were going to music conservatories and also going overseas and studying with Boulanger in some cases and right. things like that. And so it was more of a generational split, I think, I at that time. And then I think it started to be maybe somewhere in there kind of side by side. And I think there was some tension, actually, mm -hmm. between the two groups of composers for a while. There have been, you know, some composers who have felt like they want to just be a composer, Black composers who just want to be considered a composer and not a Black composer mm -hmm. or not a composer who writes in a style that incorporates Black music. And in some cases, I think maybe Ulysses K even, toward the end of his life, changed his mind about that and was okay with being identified in that way. But I think it was something that, you know, musicians of color have struggled with at various points and, and maybe still in some cases. Interestingly, the title of this article, and it's from 1975, Eileen Southern, America's Black Composers of Classical Music. And it's sort of subtitled, she has a quote, or maybe not subtitle, but there's a quote at the front of it from later in the article, because we are Black, we are making Black music. Right. Whether it sounds like it's, you know, incorporating, you know, whether it's serial music or it's incorporating Black folk music or spirituals or something, it doesn't matter. Um, right. You know, there, there's this importance of it still coming from these composers who have this experience. Yeah. Related to their race and ethnicity. Right. I opened uh, Pandora's <laughs> box a little bit in this, but I mean, clearly there's still no easy solution or easy quick answer to answer these questions. But thank you for sharing at least your insights and research in, in what you've discovered in this. Sure. You are now a professor at Ohio State University. I read that you were the founder of the OSU Vietnam Cultural Outreach Project, which was a grant funded from the Office of International National Affairs at The Ohio State University. Yes, this wasn't too long after I arrived here at OSU in 2012. Before I left Colorado, I had been invited to do some guest teaching actually in Thailand at Mahidan College of Music. And after that visit, I was then subsequently invited back to perform the Walton Concerto with the Thailand Philharmonic. And that happened, I think, in February of 2013, which was my first year here at Ohio State. The 
conductor for that concert, because they used a series of guest conductors for many of their concerts. He was from Norway and we had two performance nights and the dean of the College of Music, who was also the director or CEO or something of the Philharmonic, he took us out for dinner afterwards. And the conductor actually had a fellow Norwegian who had just arrived that day who joined us for dinner and got to talking to him. He was actually visiting, but on his way to Vietnam. And I was talking about how much I had enjoyed these trips to Thailand and getting the opportunity to engage and immerse on a small level, you know, in another culture, which is very distinct from places I had visited up to that point. Anyways, I, you know, I expressed interest in this and he said, well, would you be interested in going to Vietnam? There's some need there for some, you know, outside support. And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And then I first got a grant from OSU to go on an exploratory trip and then had the opportunity to return, I believe in 2016, and was able to support actually a summer music festival with some funds that helped me to get there and helped to cover my expenses. And I was even able to purchase music and offer my services to be a part of what was a wonderful group of teachers. It was a mostly string students and string and piano. I think we might might have had a flutist and that might have been the only wind instrument and it was just an incredible experience the cellist was from the UK and the violinist and pianist play in a quartet in Germany and we were just you know kind of a wonderful kind of impromptu group of faculty and it was just a really wonderful experience I haven't had the opportunity to go back since but it's somewhere that I really really would love to return to someday sure do you still keep tabs on what's happened with the, the students from that yes I've stayed in touch with the director and with the students on Facebook. And I don't think the festival has happened, of course, not this year with 2020. And I don't believe it happened in 2019 either. So hopefully at some point, you know, it'll get going again. And it would be wonderful to, like I said, to return there. I just, I loved my experience there. I loved the students were so sweet and engaged and grateful for the opportunity. They knew how special it was. Yeah, what a wonderful cultural unification. Yeah, a really, a really fantastic opportunity to, a cross-cultural opportunity. And, you know, we got to do what musicians do, which is you go there, you don't know exactly what you've got when you get there because you haven't had that experience before. But just like making music, you problem solve, you work it out, and everybody's used to that and works well in that way. And we ended up with a really wonderful final concert. Thank you again for sharing and also founding that. That project that sounds incredible and I hope that it in some fashion can continue and on. Yeah. Do you have any upcoming projects or things that are on your horizon? Yes. Right now, I'm getting ready to do some recordings of music by women composers for oboe and viola with a colleague and longtime friend of mine. We go all the way back to Eastman, Nancy Ambrose King. She's the oboe professor at the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. which as far as football is concerned is our rival school. Yeah. <laughs> as far as musicians are concerned, we're, we're good. <laughs> um, we met in the late 80s, I think in 89 at Eastman. And then we actually ended up teaching, I think she preceded me by one year at University of Northern College. Colorado. And we were there together, I think, for a total of three years before she left for her next job. But we've reconnected the last eight and a half years that I've been here in Columbus. So we've got a wonderful, almost all living composers. One recently died after we had already made the plans to uh, do this recording. So we're going to be doing that after the new year. And then I've been working on, you know, some of these legacy Black 
composers, a lot of the music that I did find years ago doing a CD recording of their music. And I would like to do these two pieces by Ulysses K, a couple of pieces by Frederick Tillis and others. I hired someone to do a transcription of a Joseph Bologna violin and piano sonata for viola. And we've read through it and it it really actually works quite well. Um, It's the only transcription that'll be on the CD. But yeah, so that's in the works. And yeah, that's, those are concrete things that I've got going on right now. And then I'm exploring some, you know, sort of collaborative, maybe even collaborations outside of music. You know, it's something I haven't done in the past and that I'm curious about. And it's one of the nice things that being at a huge university like this, you know, that there's so many resources and resources. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully you'll keep in touch with us and let us know when those projects come up. So then our listeners can tap in and check out what you're doing. And, and... absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Great. Is this okay for us to take a break at this moment? That would be perfect. Yeah, and I can get something to drink. Okay. (laughs) Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So before the break, we just needed to get a little quick water break. And Sushi, my cat, has been meowing at me. For for whatever reason, she's been way more attention-seeking during our recording session than ever. (laughs) I I think she just really wants to meet you. (laughs) Uh, She likes my voice or something. I've I've been told I have a calming voice or something. You do, yes. But anyway, so reading. So I also love reading myself. I'm actually part of a book club here with some of my girlfriends. And for me, like I am slowly getting back into reading. I used to love it as a kid. And with this book club, it's been really great. And to have kind of like a glorified English class, I guess, to have yeah. just except with that with the papers, you know, you get to have banter with your friends. But are you part of a book club or how did you told me that it's been something that's just been constant throughout your life that you've read? Yeah, I'm not part of a book club. Do you want to join ours? I'm just <laughs> <laughs> sure. Hey. Yeah, with everything virtual now, right? Yeah. I'm part of a French conversation club right now, oh. but, but no, not a book club. I think I was part of a book club in Colorado for a short time. Yeah. It's it's something that I, you know, I probably enjoy. It's just, you know, as a musician, you kind of pick and choose your extracurricular activities. And right. um, I guess it just hasn't made it there yet. And I think I'm sometimes picky about what I read, but I'm also very broad in what I read. Thank goodness for the Kindle, because <laughs> when I would travel, travel before Kindle, the thing that I always had the hardest time trying to figure out was how to take more than one book Mm -hmm. because I could not narrow it down to one book. I always have a couple or several books going at one time. And I just don't want to get to a hotel or somewhere and only have one option because I might be in the mood for something else, you know, and now I've got the Kindle, you know, and I can have my entire library with me. I do miss there are certain things like anything that's music related, I get in, you know, hard or softback. I just, I love the feel, you know, of turning the pages of a book, but it has made, you know, I've, I've had to move a couple of times in the last few years and it's made that a little easier. Oh, um, no kidding. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot easier probably. Yeah. I don't have a Kindle. I've, I used to read it on the Kindle app on my phone or something like that, but I know that the Kindle has a much nicer sheen and look to it than yeah. the blue screen on your phone, right? Absolutely. 
yeah, I like having that backlit and you can adjust it. Yeah, it's much easier on the eyes. So what books do you have on your Kindle now? Or I guess I should say actively reading on your Kindle because yeah. you can have anything um, on your Kindle. Let's see. I just, it's a strange collection of things. I have the little book of Hugo. It's Danish secrets to happy living. And it's considered, I think, one of the happiest countries in the world. And they actually have a happiness institute where they do a lot of research and collect data from countries all over the world. Per capita, they sell the most candles. Huh. Of any, if any country. The word Hugo is hard to, there's no direct translation in English, but basically it encompasses a lot of things like coziness, comfort, warmth, safety, community within, you know, the home. And so anyways, I'm rereading it. It's a tiny, it's a small book. You know, it's kind of popular. People are trying to, you know, incorporate some of these ideas, you know, like the cozy, ugly sweater and, you know, candles and, you know, low lighting at night, you know, to really just kind of create a sense of warmth. And like I said, coziness and family and community and stuff at, at home. I'm rereading another book, Free Play, Improvisation and Life in the Arts, written by a violinist, Stephen Nachmanovich. It's very sort of musical zen. He's an improvising violinist, but he also talks about, like the subtitle says, Improvisation, Life and the Arts. He talks about improvisation from the vantage point of the violin, but he also kind of applies it to life in general and, and the arts more broadly. My Struggle, book one by, I think he's Norwegian, Carl Ove Knausgård. He's got a six volume autobiography that became really popular in translations. And I've been trying to get my way, I'm 75% of the way through this first volume. It's quite edgy, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's like reading a real detailed diary of someone, you know, and their life and experiences and the emotional baggage that goes along with it. But I'm, I'm determined to get through it. I've got Harry Potter in French, book one. A short story book called Sweet and Low by an OSU professor. It's short stories. And then another one, OSU professor's book called Pardon My Heart. His name is Marcus Jackson. It's poetry, which I haven't started yet, but I had seen something about it and was interested. One of my favorite for a long time to read is, has been mystery novels. So I've got Janet Ivanovich's most recent book, Fortune and Glory in the Stephanie Plum series. Another really completely different mystery writer is James Lee Burke. He's I think a Texas native, I think he's 80 now, he's still writing, but he's lived in Louisiana and may still split his time between Louisiana and Montana. I especially love his Dave Robichaux, who's this sheriff down in the Cajun culture in New Iberia, Louisiana, and just really wonderful, descriptive writer, very deep and thoughtful stuff. So yeah, I mean, I've got some of everything. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you one of the things that looking at the number of books that you have currently on your shelf flipping back and forth well I had a couple questions about that one is is there a unifying theme of what you find attractive out of these books and then second how do you keep track of which book you're reading and the plots and because sometimes if I put down a book I might forget what happened previously so maybe I just haven't gotten to your level of reading the thing that makes it a little easier to keep track of is that they're all very different like the little book of Hugo is just like something that's inspirational about kind of reminding me about things I can do now that it's winter break. And so I might read just a little bit that maybe I've forgotten the first time I read through it and was just learning about it. And Harry Potter, I'm just 
reading because I'm, you know, I studied French in high school and college and then have worked on my own over the years at varying levels of intensity. I mean, it definitely never really super intense, but it was suggested by the person who runs my meetup group that I read it and listen to it on Audible at the same time. And he said, just do two pages a day. That's all you need. I know these books backwards and forwards. My kids and I, we used to have marathons in the summer where we watch all the movies that were out at the time. So it's more of just trying to practice my French, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'll often also have maybe something that's light, you know, and I'll probably delve into it. Like the mystery, I read that a while back and I'll binge mysteries often. <laughs> maybe not James Lee Burke so much because it's so much more deep kind of literature, but something like Janet Ivanovich, it's all for, it's like a roller coaster ride. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, there's a lot of humor and it's just more for really the enjoyment of feeling I'm a part of what's going on in a way, you know, maybe more of a surface entertainment. So there are things that I read more slowly. Yeah. And I'm not reading all of these right now, but one of the things about having poetry and short stories is that those are things that I can, you know, if I just need a little something before bedtime or I can read one of, you know, so it's not connected to a longer plot line. Story arc, right. Yeah. It's sort of your version of Netflix, whatever show that you feel like watching, if that's your flavor of choice of that moment. Right. Idea. Yeah. It sounds like you continue to go back to mystery novel. What about that genre to you is so intriguing? Initially, and for quite a long time, it was like math or, you know, as I related that to practicing before, it was, it was a challenge to f- see if I could figure out who done it before <laughs> I got anywhere near the end of the book. And believe it or not, I think it wasn't until college that I discovered Agatha Christie books. And then I just read everyone I could get my hands on, but I figured out there's a formula. It's kind of like math. There's a pattern. It's like, you know, working out a technical passage in a piece of music. There's patterns, you know? Yeah. And so I kind of figured that out and I, and I would challenge myself to do that. And I remember when I first was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, you know, here I am in my mid twenties, you know, a young professor and I'm single and everybody, you know, my colleagues are all married. And so what do I do on a Friday night if I don't have a gig? Well, I go to the grocery store and, you know, it happened to be Myers, which is like the, the precursor to like, you know, the super target where you could buy your groceries and household items. So I would get my groceries and then I would go to the paperbacks and I'd, pick up like, Agatha Christie and I would stay up until four in the morning Friday night reading it. <laughs> you know just kind of like binge reading so yeah it probably started with that but I think more recently like the Janet Ivanovich they're hilarious they're entertaining they're meant to entertain there is still a little bit of that element of you know maybe trying to figure out who done it but it's more the entertainment the main character Stephanie you know has these two love interests you know and she can never decide between the two of them so she's just a hot mess you know? <laughs> and um and so you know I don't know maybe a little vicarious you know kind of experience I think with something like that and then yeah some of the other mysteries like James Lee Burke stuff and Craig Johnson it's more the descriptive stuff the Longmire series is set in Wyoming you know I lived in Colorado for 21 years and there's just you know there's that element there's a lot of like human sort of character development that goes on people who are you know sort of struggling with uh, you know, the Dave Robichaux character
director in James Lee Burke's series, you know, he struggles with, you know, a lot of personal trauma throughout his life, you know, alcoholism, he's a Vietnam War vet, you know, there's, you just really get deep into these characters. These are flawed individuals, you know, and even though the crime might get solved, there's maybe always a twist to it. Like there's still something not quite right with the world. Yeah. And he's definitely still, you know, continuing to struggle with his own demons. And so there's a humanness and, you know, relatability almost too. Yeah. Yeah. And a realism to that, even though, you know, it might be realism of a very extreme situation. You know, there's also a, a lot of stuff that's unbelievable, but yeah, it's just, it's just incredibly engaging. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for in a story anyway, right? I mean, yeah. As you say, it's sort of like you're practicing a technical passage in reading these mystery novels. Have you ever had the thought that maybe one day you would want to write your own? I have. Um, okay. Younger, probably before kids. I've got a 20 and 24 year old now. I dabbled in poetry. I never felt really like I had a story to tell. I mean, I love reading so much that it kind of inspires me to want to write. But then when I sit down and try to think of, well, what would I write about? And I'm like, I don't have any ideas, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm just going to keep reading, you know? But I did do more in the way of poetry when I was younger. I remember one Christmas in my 20s, after actually I had started teaching, I had written a couple of poems that I was kind of proud of and I printed them up on this parchment-like paper and framed them for family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. Oh, a book that I read a couple of summers, I think, ago, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And she wrote her first book. It took her, I think, 10 years to write it. She finished it when she was 71, just a couple of years ago. And this book has become so incredibly popular. It might've been on Oprah's list. I know it was on Reese Witherspoon's list. Mm -hmm. And I happened upon it and I just absolutely was taken with it. And I was taken with her story. I think I saw her story. She was interviewed on, I think, CBS Sunday morning last winter or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know what? She didn't write her first book till her seventies. Maybe it's, you know, till after retirement. Maybe, maybe I'll do that then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, there's no timeline necessarily. I mean, yeah. Right. Well, I'd be curious to see what you would come up with. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is an obligatory question for me to ask you, but who is your favorite author and why? Mm, That's like one of the fast buzzer ones. Oh yeah. It's so hard to choose. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's of the moment and because of, you know, what we're talking about, because I know I've left out so many other authors that I really admire and, and whose work I love. But maybe because of what we're talking about now, it might be James Lee Burke. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, you know, he talks about all of his influences, talks about the flawed characters and, you know, relates that even to like Shakespeare and some of the earlier 20th century writers. And I can't remember exactly who right now, but. I I mean, uh, to me, my favorite author is John Steinbeck. And mm. for that very reason, he's American realism is is what people call it. And his characters are flawed as well. Yet there's always some kind of silver lining in his stories. Anyway, not to jump on your answer, but. No, that might've been. Yeah, maybe that might've been one of them, but there's, I think there was some, yes, he, he may have mentioned Steinbeck and I can't remember others, but it's more than entertainment. It's incredible modern literature. One of his novels was set right after Katrina hit New Orleans mm-hmm. and, and he incorporates so much. I was born and raised in Louisiana. We moved around quite a bit at first, but it's just really vivid writing and reading his stuff. I can see the Spanish moss on the live oak trees, you know, sure, and feel the humidity. Similarly, 
I mean, if I'm going to say I have the same correlation with you with this author, with John Steinbeck as well, when I read his novels, the way he portrays certain parts of the Central Coast or Central Valley, even of California, you know, that's where I grew up. That's my homeland. I know exactly what those bluffs look like. I, yeah, yeah, there's something very that brings you back to your childhood in a way. When authors can capture that yeah. visual, that is very special. Yeah, and good yeah. writing. Yeah, his characters will even reference literature and history, you know, centuries old history, you know, and, and literature. It's such informed, there's so many levels of it that, you know, it really requires you to take your time going through it, reading it. Sometimes I'm, you know, I have to really slow myself down to make sure that I'm not missing some elements. And that was going to be another question of mine. As you're saying, a lot of these books are second or third time read. In each iteration of reading these books, what surprises you after reading the same text? Actually, you know what? I think it circles back to what I was saying earlier about like revisiting a Brahms sonata, you know, or, or any music, any piece. I'm bringing more to the table and, you know, the entertainment stuff, it's just for entertainment and to be entertained yet again, you know, by rereading it. But whether it's nonfiction or fiction, you know, like something like free play, you know, which is this real Zen approach to music. I think my life experiences give me an opportunity to maybe understand something better than I did the last time through. Sometimes it's been a long, long time, you know, a decade or more since I've read something. And so I've just forgotten about it. So sometimes it's also just a nice reminder of, oh yeah, that's what this was about. Oh, I lost touch with that. And it's nice to be reminded about this way of seeing something or looking at something or experiencing something. And I think the first time I read Free Play, I had never improvised and I don't practice it much. It's something that I want to do more of because, you know, I, I'm definitely, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was closer to retirement than I was to the beginning of my career. So I, you know, not to fool myself. And, you know, when I think of, you know, what will I do? What role will music play in retirement? It might look really different from this anyways. But, you know, since I first read that book, I've, you know, gone to Mark O'Connor's camp a couple few times. I've been to Christian House, his jazz violinist who used to live here and is now in Asheville, but still does these creative strings workshops. And so I've dabbled in improvisation since then. I, so again, like I'm bringing something else, whether it's a musical or career experience or a life experience to a second or a third reading of something. I see. Yeah, no, that's a great parallel. Is there anything that I might have forgotten to ask you about your passion for reading that you might want to tell us? You know, I think it sort of relates to my introversion, cuddling up with a book, you know, and a, a pot of tea or something. It's probably a little bit of Danish hygge for me. I can get so involved in the book that it feels not like I'm there, but like I'm experiencing some of what's going on. I, you know, I didn't used to read nonfiction. And so I think that's probably created a good balance for me, as well as there are just all these, I, I don't know that I'd say I have an interest in a specific nonfiction topic. It's just that I might come across a book and think, oh, that's interesting. And then I learned something, you know, something new that I had never thought about before. Sure. But at the same time, maybe it also provide me kind of another option. So I don't get like emotionally sucked into fiction, which is easy to do. Yeah. Every now and then it's nice to toss in a nonfiction to bring variety to your yeah, yeah. And definitely bring me back to reality, I think, too. <laughs> because I think the number of times I've gone through, you know, Harry Potter at this point, I'm convinced I'm going to teach there someday. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or live there or go back in time and be a kid, be a wizard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, well, and that's the beauty of her writing too, is it really wants you to believe that there is 
such a thing as yeah. Hogwarts. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on and passion for reading. Can Absolutely. I ask you two final questions? Yeah. What, in your opinion, is the most common misconception of classical music and the classical music world? It's a combination of things that classical musicians, even though I've talked about it being about the art, that it's not a job. And the assumption that it's always fun. Yes. <laughs> and I meet someone and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll ask me what I do. And it's like classical musician. Oh, it must be so nice to do something that you love. And I have to remind them it's a job. Yes, I love it, but it doesn't mean it's fun all the time. There are the politics of academia or the performance world. It's a lot of hard work too. It maybe comes easier for some than others, but it's always still hard work. It's not less important important or less challenging than the academic work or things that you wouldn't be in a practice room, you know, problem solving for. I hate to sound like I'm making a downer statement here, but I have to convince people sometimes that it's hard work and that it's not as idyllic, I guess, as it appears to be on the stage from the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It would be pretty idyllic if that was the case for everybody. I mean, it, I would even say in any profession, if it was just as easy as it looks. Yes. And I mean, you could even equate that to saying playing Mozart or something. It, it looks so easy to do, but yet it's so yes. hard. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So that's a fantastic answer. One that I certainly have been told a lot from people who really don't know what we do behind the scenes of things. So thank you for that answer. And I think, you know, knowing what I know about, especially having the option of going into a non-artistic field, that I can make that statement of this is just as hard as being an engineer and just as challenging. And it has the same ups and downs and good days and bad days. And, yeah. and I hope that that helps people value it because I think that's one of the challenges in our country of being such a young country and a country that has so many opportunities, you know, Know, for things for people to do for entertainment, I guess you would say. We compete with sports in a way that is not the case in most European countries. Yes, sports you know, are very important, but it's not quite about sports or the art. It's more and. We don't have streets named after our American composer heroes, the way that you have a Beethoven Strasse, or we don't have as long a legacy. Yeah. Hence why it now is incredibly important that we do so and that we honor those that are part of the original legacy of what American music is. So, yes. Anyway, absolutely. not to get back into <laughs> No, that's great. I love it. Yeah. After all the impact that COVID has done to classical music, what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession? I hope that, you know, like the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, that, you know, the general public will realize or is realizing how much an important part of their lives live music is. Mm -hmm and not take it for granted and be willing to support it and advocate for it. I kind of envision, you know, I've even thought about like going to a concert myself, not even necessarily a classical concert, but just maybe specifically a non-classical concert. And what will it feel like to be in the audience and how will the music move me and just how liberating I'm hoping, you know, liberating a feeling it will be to like, especially to be somewhere where, you know, it's jazz or funk or some kind of pop music where you feel like just moving and you can and do that in community 
community, you know, with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I'm hoping that a lot of us are going to, you know, have that first live experience again and be mesmerized and maybe fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, I was thinking, or cry. <laughs> or cry. Yeah, that, that for sure. Yeah. And I'm not, I wonder what, yeah, what that will be. There's going to be strong emotion, I think. Oh, yeah. 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 I absolutely agree. And that, yeah, remembering what we've lost in the pandemic of the live aspect of it, because as you're saying, it is all about interpersonal connectivity and not just within the being in the audience, but from the musician to audience member connection. Well, so everyone buy your tickets now. I'm just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Juliet, are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? You know, my website is JulietWhite-Smith.com. I need to do some updating. (laughs) I realize I have no musical examples (laughs) on that website, but I do have a contact page on there and I have a YouTube channel. Most of my performances are actually in the playlist Mm. because the videos there, someone else posted. So I can't put them on my main YouTube page, but I've got a lot of chamber music performances, a couple of my recital performances. And Axis had put up the tracks of my CD. And so I, I think I've made links for that there. And, you know, the work I'm doing with Music by Black Composers project of Rachel Barton Pine Foundation, I'm kind of her viola person for that at musicbyblackcomposers.org. If anybody's interested in repertoire, I pretty soon, I think under the resources or under sheet music, I believe it is, there'll be a repertoire directory for viola music that'll go up on that. I'm a, an infrequent Twitterer, so... <laughs> You know, I, occasionally I'll put something up there, but yeah. What's your handle for Twitter? Yeah, at Juliet White SM. Okay. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and ratings help this podcast be more visible to others. And it's a free way to support this podcast. Another free way is to tell your friends and family about it. And you can always become part of the Hidden Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Hidden Music Stand. Don't forget, there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast. And right now it's like 500 and some tracks it's quite a lot of music (laughs) wow that's awesome it's all really great music though and the link is always in the description of each episode follow us on social media facebook instagram and twitter all at hyden music stand thank you so much for being on the show juliet and thank you for your openness and vulnerability and talking about your life and what you do and what you're most passionate about thank you so much it's been so nice to meet you thank you patty this has been incredible and what a treat and what a wonderful thing you're providing to your listeners well thank you thank you so much (laughs) and thank you for listening say bye sushi And during the <laughs> sushi, <laughs> this is my cat sushi. <laughs> sushi, you are adorable. <laughs> oh my god, she's pretty. <laughs> I was oh. on a roll too. Okay, <laughs> okay, let me try again. <laughs>